Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I'm Avi Havivi. I'm the chair of the Temple Beth Am Green Team, which we have resuscitated this year after a decade of dormancy in honor of the 5782 Shemitah year. Keep an eye on your monthly emails and the green team button under get involved on the TVA website. Um, We have sort of a a focus of individual and family activity every month. This month, this past month, I should say October Cheshvan, it's been um, eat less meat. And so um, in concert with that theme, we're having two talks this week, one by Rabbi Elliot Dorf, now, who's going to be talking about the Jewish ethics of uh, animal welfare, Sa'ar Balei Chaim. And then on Thursday evening, the 11th, in two more days at 7.30 p.m., our very own grew up at um, TBA, Melissa Hoffman, who works for uh, something called the Jewish Initiative for Animals, which is a subsidiary or a project of an organization called Farm Forward um, is going to be speaking on Jewish communal eating, uh, a response to factory farming. So Rabbi Dorf is going to be talking about the Jewish and halachic aspects of care for care for animals. And Melissa is going to be focusing more on the realities of factory farming in the United States and what it means for beef, poultry and eggs to get to our plate. Uh, just to look ahead, in December, our next set of programs also uh, in the same week. This is not, you haven't gotten publicity on this yet, but you will. On Tuesday, December 14th at noon, Rabbi Nina Beth Cardin is going to be talking about her conservative movement, Rabbinic Responsum or Chuva on sustainability as a mitzvah. And then the next night, Wednesday, December 15th at 7.30, since it's just post-Hanukkah, the holiday when the oil lasted for eight days, we're going to take the opportunity to start talking about the oil and gas industry in California. The first talk for that will be Wednesday, the 15th, December 15th in the evening. Um, Ingrid Lobet, who is a a uh, freelance journalist on the oil and gas beat is going to be talking about the facts on history of the oil and gas industry in California. We hope that in January, that's going to be, uh, uh, ha- be followed by a next program, which is actually going to be about local community efforts to deal with, uh, which might mean uh, monitor better and or shut down the oil well at Pico and La Cienega in all our backyards. Um, so that's what we're doing. So today we can go till one fifteen as a hard stop time. It's usually sort of 12 to one, but I find that these classes tend to linger over a little bit. So we said till one fifteen. So without further ado, Rabbi Dorf. Well, first of all, Javi, thank you for putting this entire program together. I mean, it's a real boon for the congregation and, and for all of us that are learning with you, with you. it's a uh, colic of vote, really. I, I know this is not part of your job description at UCLA Medical Center. <laughs> right. um, the, um, <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm going to uh, share some sources with you uh, and simply talk about them first. Um, but, you're, but please interrupt me at any point if you have questions or you want to ask things like about them. 
And then after we look at the sources, uh, I'm going to uh, try to apply them uh, to some very contemporary issues um, with regard to animals and the use of animals. Um, so, and, and, and one just background comment, which I, I take it you understand from day one, but still, um, the biblical and rabbinic sources come from a time and a place in which a lot of Jews were involved in agriculture, in the use of animals for all kinds of reasons. Um, not the case where I would imagine everybody on this Zoom call, right? We're all city slickers. Um, and, you know, most of our lives have not been working with animals. Uh, it may be the case that for some of you, that's incorrect, but I'll just say, at least for me, right? I grew up in Milwaukee and um, we did have to, you know, the dairy state. Um, so we did actually watch cows being milked at one point in elementary school. And we actually had to take cream and shake it for three hours to show that it became butter, but it didn't look yellow. Um, that that was, you know, added, that food coloring was added after the, the back. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles. I grew up in a sort of quasi-agricultural community. But, uh, but truthfully, I have never been, a, I've never worked on a farm or anything like that. And um, so these, these sources that I'm going to share with you, though, come from people who are actually working with animals day in and day out, um, including some of the rabbis. I mean, you know, both Hillel and Rabbi Akiva are shepherds. That's what they do for a living. Right. And um, and so they are they are rabbis, though they be are, are very much involved with animals. Um, others were tanners you know, that that dealt with, you know, had to uh, cultivate animals and then uh, kill them and skin them. And, you know, others were um, involved in you know other kinds of, of uh, trades that involved animals a lot um, and not just as pets. Uh, so we're going to see actually in some of these sources where um, uh, rabbis actually interact with animals in a particular way. Okay, so let me share the screen. Do you all have, well, let me ask you, do you all have the sources in front of you or should I share the screen? We have them. You have them. Okay, so then. I think you should, I share, have them. I think you should share the screen. It's a little right. easier though. Yeah, I think Can you should share the screen. Okay. Yes, please. I don't know how okay. to, to get them on my screen. Yeah. Rabbi Dwarf is going to screen share then. There we go. That's better. Okay. okay. Great. Good. Okay. So what I've done in putting together these sources um, is divide them into three three categories. One, having to do with the physical suffering of animals. And then second, with the psychological or emotional suffering of animals. And then third, the legal status of these uh, rules. So first, Sorry, Rabbi, Rabbi Dorf, could you enlarge that? Your the the uh, yeah. Let me see. Um, how do I do that? Let's see. Let me, let me. And if if we if you all click view options, you can enlarge it. I think to what's comfortable for your own eyes. It's on the top. Uh, uh, let's see. Hold on. There's something here that I'm supposed to do. To oh wait a minute. Oh, I can. Hold on, I can do this, can't I? Hold on. Select all and make it, let's say, like that. Is that better? Yeah. Not really. Is it? Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the first one, every 
Genesis chapter 9, every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. This is different from Adam and Eve, right? Where they were only uh, allowed to, uh, to eat of the, uh, of, of the fruits and, and vegetables and I suppose grains, uh, that were there, but not of anything, uh, with, uh, an animal characteristic. Uh, whereas, uh, this is now after Noah. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat, as with the green grasses, I give you all of these. You must not, however, eat flesh with its lifeblood in it. And Rashi on that verse, uh, connects it here. Uh, he here prohibited to them, Abram Inachai, that is the eating of a limb cut from a living animal. That is to say, Basarna Benavsho, literally flesh together with its life, means so long as its life is in you, you shall not eat the flesh. Now you might say, ugh, right? In other words, I wouldn't do that altogether. Um, but you need to know that um, through the Middle Ages, some of you may, may, may remember uh, the movie, um, oh God, what's it called? Billy, uh, something or other, where they, they have one scene there, it takes place during the Middle Ages, where he literally uh, takes a limb from an animal and starts eating it. Um, so, I mean, even if that's not something that you would think of doing, you need to know that it's not at all uncommon in other societies uh, to allow eating flesh from a living animal, right? Um, but here, uh, the Torah, as understood <clears throat> by our tradition anyway, <clears throat> very early on, makes that a prohibition. And that, it turns out to be, because it was given to Noah, <clears throat> it turns out to be one of the prohibitions that are prohibited not just to Jews, but to all children of Noah. So in the list that the rabbis later come up with of the seven uh, prohibitions that um, that apply to all children of Noah, this is one of them, right? It's probably not something that you would have expected <clears throat> right off. I mean, you would have expected prohibitions against murder and theft and maybe idolatry and licentiousness and things like that. Um, but this happens to be one of the and I, I actually have done that with students every once in a while. I would say, you know, if you were creating a list of seven, um, six prohibitions and one positive commandment that everybody in the world should be subject to, to which every my, my, my mother was an English teacher, to which everybody in the world should be subject, right? Um, what, what would be on your list? And, you know, they almost always come up with murder and theft and things like that and, and rape and things on that order. Um, but almost never, nobody comes up with Abram Inachai. Um, and part is because my students are generally city slickers, so they wouldn't think of it. But in part, it's because this has been so ingrained in our culture that, um, that you sort of see it as being obvious that if you're going to eat meat, you have to take at least some, con- have some concern for the suffering of the animal, um, whose meat you are eating. Then Exodus uh, 20 and Deuteronomy 5, uh, these are the Ten Commandments, of course. Uh, six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger is within your settlements. And in Deuteronomy, which um, from an historical point of view is probably about four centuries later, the Exodus Law Code, uh, scholars think, was during was certainly in place by the time of David, around a 1,000 or so before the Common Era. And Deuteronomy is about 400 years later. Right there, it's your son or daughter, your male or slave, or female slave, your ox or your donkey, or any of your cattle. Right, all of them um, shall have rest on the seventh day. Now, again, this may seem sort of obvious to you, but you need to know that 
um, even for human beings um, in the Greek world, the fact that the, the Greeks thought Jews were lazy because they took off one day out of seven, right? And if that's true for human beings, all the more so for animals. Um, so this kind of rule, which may seem, you know, very, very, you, know, you might be very sanguine about it. You, know, you might say this is that, yes, indeed, not only human beings, but animals need to have one day off of out of seven. Uh, you need to know that that's not at all a slam dunk in the ancient world. Uh, and for that matter, into the medieval and modern world, um, where, as we are seeing now, um, because of COVID, a lot of people who, you know, who are, uh, who are working impossible hours at very low wages are refusing to come back to work now because they have come to recognize that, you know, work is, can be an idol that you worship seven days a week, 24 seven. Right. Um, but that it should not be and that this kind of, uh, this kind of rule, uh, that applies not only human beings, but also to, uh, to animals, uh, is, is an important kind of rule to abide by so that work does not become an idol. Um, then next, when you see the donkey of your enemy um, lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it up. Okay, now this is presumably, um, not, uh, this is an animal that um, that has a burden on it, like a donkey, that was used for carrying things. This is all obviously before cars, trucks, trains, planes, all of that, right? Um, so they would use donkeys to carry things. Um, and it was lying under its burden. Um, you must nevertheless raise it with him, even though this person is your enemy. It belongs to your enemy. And then the, the other one that is, um, again, four centuries later, if you see your fellow's donkey or ox fallen under the road. So this is somebody that you don't have antipathy toward, but quite the opposite. That is uh, somebody that is your a member of your community, Reacha, right? Um, you do not ignore it. You must help him raise it. Now, this is presumably an obligation to the owners of these animals, right? And the question then becomes, well, what kind of a burden are we talking about? Why is the animal lying down under the burden? Um, so this is, you get in the Mishnah. There is a mitzvah, by, and this, I'm, I, I just um, copy this from Svaria. And what Svaria does is it puts in bold print the words that are actually translations of the Hebrew or Aramaic, um, but it puts in in regular print uh, the what you need to know in order to make it a sentence. In other words, what's being presumed by the Hebrew or the Aramaic words. That's why some of these words are in bold print and some are not. But it's all part of the same uh, the same source. There is a mitzvah by Torah law to unload a burden, but there is no mitzvah to to load it. That's the uh, that's the, the what's called the Tanakama, the first opinion, and it doesn't have any name associated with it. <clears throat> so that's usually understood to be the majority opinion, that there is a mitzvah by Torah law to unload a burden in order to unload the uh, suffering that the animal has in carrying the burden, but there is no mitzvah to load it, right? Even though you have these two verses in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 22, the, the Tanakhama is here is saying, um, you do know, you have no mitzvah to load it on them. What you had in, in, in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 22 was to help your fellow Jew, whether an, a friend of yours or not, um, to, to raise up the animal that 
this, this, that uh, is being needed to carry a burden. But you, there's no mitzvah to begin with to load an animal. Rabbi Shimon says there is even a mitzvah to load the burden. Rabbi Shimon disagrees and says, no, as a matter of fact, because, and you can imagine, because we in the ancient world use animals to carry our burdens for us, um, that's part of what it means to be an animal, uh, a, a, a beast of burden, literally. Uh, so if you're talking about a donkey or an ox, which are used often to carry it, uh, to carry a burden, then there is a mitzvah to load the burden in order to help uh, your uh, your friend who owns the animal um, have this animal, uh, use this animal in the way that it's normally used. Rabbi Yossi Aglila says, if there was a burden upon the animal greater than its typical burden, one need not attend to it, as it is stated, under its burden. So in other words, if your friend or your enemy has put on the animal too too heavy a load, then you have uh, there one need not attend to it. That is, you're not supposed to help him, help this other person uh, load onto the animal uh, a burden that is too heavy for it, right? And as it is stated under its burden, that is, the obligation is in regard to a burden that an animal can bear. But if your fellow Jew, whether a friend or an enemy, is trying to load onto the burden, onto the animal, a burden that is much too great for it, then you have, then, then those laws don't apply to this case. You have no obligation to help your friend or your enemy load onto an animal a burden that is too heavy for it. Because presumably your obligation to the animal here <clears throat> takes precedence over your obligation to your fellow Jew, whether a friend or an enemy. So here you're getting a real sense of our obligations to animals uh, that <clears throat> that can, in some cases, as in this one, supersede the your animal your obligation to your fellow Jew who wants to use this animal to carry a burden, right? Um, the in the next in the Babylonian Talmud on this, <clears throat> unloading is performed for free, and loading is performed with remuneration. That's the Tanakama. Right. So in other words, if why would that be the case? Um, well, what would you think? Let me ask ask you. <laughs> what would you guess? OK, Jody. Well, the argument you're making is that the reason why Rava said this is because that loading is harder on the animal. Right. Um, um, <clears throat> so it's. I mean, there are different opinions on whether you have to get paid or not for the work. But Rava jumps in and says, wait, wait, wait. The key thing is not um, not causing suffering. The thing is, though, if it's you can load an animal and it doesn't necessarily suffer too much. It may not like it. Right. Um, But Rava never says you can never use a pack animal. No, quite the opposite. Right. What's going on here is. You know, it's, the assumption is that you may you may use a pack animal um, for carrying a reasonable burden, right? But if you're talking about an animal that is um, that that is lying down because of its burden, you have to presume that um, that the animal, at any rate, is not just lazy, but that the animal uh, is feeling this as being too heavy a load, and so therefore. Unloading it has to be formed for has to be formed for free, out of a duty to the animal, but loading it is performed with remuneration, namely your obligation to your fellow Jew, 
<coughs> to load an animal, a pack animal, in its normal load uh, is not something that you do for free, that you have to do for free. Rather, uh, that's a that's a job, and whoever owns the animal and wants to load this this burden on the animal uh, has to pay you if you if that person wants your uh, cooperation in doing that in, in loading the animal, right? Um, Rabbi Shimon says both this and that, both the loading and unloading, are performed for free. What do you think the reason is for his behind his position? He's a minority here, but still, what would you guess his his reasoning is? Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, loading would be done as uh, an obligation to your fellow Jew, and unloading would be done as an obligation to the animal. Yeah, or the loading and and unloading could be both uh, to your fellow Jew, right? If your fellow Jew needs some help, um, not everything has to be done for pay, right? And, um, And so there are certain obligations we have to each other to help each other out. Now, presumably, this would be a one-time thing. I mean, you know, if the, if your your friend who owns an animal wants you to help him load the animal day after day after day, that's not reasonable, okay? But if it's a one-time thing, and you know the animal is uh, has fallen down under the load and it's a reasonable load, um, then then even that you should do for free. You should help your friend or your enemy, for that matter, uh, do it for free. But but again, the presumption here is not as a regular job, uh, that this is a one-time thing, right? As an obligation to your fellow Jew, whether you like him or not. And then what Jody was talking about before, Rava says, from the statements of both of these Tanaim, that is both the Tanakama and Rabbi Shimon, it can be learned that the requirement to prevent suffering to animals is by Torah law. Now, that's pretty clear for the Tanakama. Unloading is performed for free. So presumably there... Their issue is suffering of the animals. But what do you think, why do you think that Rava thinks that Rabbi Shimon is, is asserting this? If even loading the animal is to be done for free, then how is that at all re- relevant to the suffering of the animal? Jody, go ahead. Well, it isn't, but it says in the text, you must help him raise it. Yes. So you can't just... Uh... I mean, what, you can take it all off and then raise the donkey and then leave the stuff on the ground? That the text itself makes an ob- a bigger obligation on you to help him get it on its way, in a way. Yes, that's right. So, on the one hand, even for, so for Rabbi Shimon, even the um, the loading of the load uh, back onto the animal um, is to be done for free because that is something, again, not as a regular thing, okay, but as a one-time thing, um, that is something that is preventing suffering to animals by virtue of the fact that you're taking the load off of the animal and repositioning it. Maybe the problem was not the, the, the amount of the load, but the position on which it had been loaded, right? Uh, repositioning it so that the animal can uh, is not suffering by carrying this load, all right? So the way that Rava is understanding even Rav Shimon let alone the Tanakama, is that they, the, that preventing suffering to animals is by Torah law. Torah law being the two verses in Exodus and Deuteronomy uh, that we looked at just a, a few minutes ago. Now, all of this so far is in regards to physical suffering, to prevent the physical suffering of the animal. Another example of that is Deuteronomy 22. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. 
Now, why not? So, so a donkey and an ox are of unequal abilities in terms of their ability to pull. And it right. would be um, a hardship probably on the donkey to try and keep up with an ox. It would also be a hardship on the ox to be um, doing more than its fair share. That's right. And pulling along the donkey along, uh, along with it, right? So, I mean, it's not, it's not kind. It's, it's either animal. Um, and you're not allowed to do that because you are causing suffering to both the ox and the donkey uh, if you are doing that. Now, watch this next one. This comes from uh, the Talmud and Baba Metzia. Um The sufferings of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. Uh, uh, in another place, uh, it turns out that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi uh, suffered a lot with kidney stones, what we would call kidney stones and things like that, right? So um, the sufferings of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi came upon him due to an incident and left him due to another incident. What was that incident that led to his suffering? There was a certain calf that was being led to slaughter. The calf went and hung its head on the corner of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's garment and was weeping. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi said to it, go as you were created for this purpose. It was said in heaven, since he was not compassionate towards the calf, let afflictions come upon him. So the presumption is, now, any of you who happen to be medical doctors would doubt this, I would imagine, uh, and probably rightfully so, right? But um, the but medicine in the ancient world was not where it is today. And in any case, uh, they were trying to explain how, how Rabbi Huda after all, the president of the Sanhedrin, the editor of the Mishnah, you know, why should he suffer? And so one of the reasons that they gave was this, namely that he was not kind to this calf. Now, he may, you know, I mean, as far as you know, he was a meat eater and, uh, and was probably, you know, perfectly willing to have the animal slaughtered uh, in the correct way and then uh, the blood taken out. In other words, you know, keeping kosher, as it were, uh, and eating meat under those rules. Um, but, but that wasn't the question here. The question here was his attitude toward the animal that was clearly uh, suffering at the time. Okay, but the, his his afflictions left him due to another incident. One day, the maidservant of Rabbi Hunasi was sweeping his house. There were young weasels lying around, and she was in the process of sweeping them out. Rabbi Hunasi said to her, "Let them be, as it is written: The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works." They said in heaven, since he was compassionate, we will be compassionate on him. And he was relieved of his suffering. Right now, again, this is not what I was what doctors, I think, would prescribe as a remedy for kidney stones. Okay, Um, that's not what's going on here. Right. What's going on here is is really part of the problem of evil. Namely, why do good people suffer? And. um and what they are trying to say is that um, both their suffering and their and the relieving of their suffering, in this case, was a function of uh, Rabbi Yudanasi's, uh relationship to animals. Uh, and that even if you notice, that these sources are not saying that you have to be a vegetarian, right? These suffering, these sources are just saying that if you are going to uh, kill animals for food. Uh, then you at least have to be as, uh, as as aware of their suffering and and, re- and relieve it as much as possible, including even while they're long before they get to the slaughterhouse, uh, and they are they have some kind of a they have fear they 
I mean, the animal was, the calf was apparently weeping. Um, and so you need to be kind to weeping a- animal in the same, maybe not quite the same way or to the same degree, but you have to be kind to a weeping animal as you would be to a weeping person. Okay. Rabbi uh, Dorf, go ahead. Be going. I just want to make a brief observation. Um, and I guess maybe this is like other things in the Torah also that the Torah just has a few laws pertaining to animals. You could also add in like sending away the mother bird. Oh, what you're going to have, but, but, but the Torah doesn't anywhere articulate a principle, right? Be compassionate to animals. Right. Um, It's really the Talmud inferring these principles from the Torah and first sort of stating it as a, as a, a philosophical principle, as it were, a general principle. That's right. That's right. The general principle does not appear in the Torah. Uh, the general principle only inter- in, uh, appears in the Talmud. Tsar Balei Chaim, pain to uh, living animals. Um, and it's a, um, but it is a generalization over some very specific Torah laws, like the one in Exodus that I mentioned before in Deuteronomy. And now we're going to go to psychological suffering. I mean, I must say that, um, the fact that uh, the Torah prohibited physical suffering of animals um, is is wonderful. Don't get me wrong, and was not at all the case in other societies. But it's the kind of sort of bottom, you know, sort of threshold moral rule that you would expect to some extent. If you had any any connection to animals whatsoever, you may want to say, "Well, I don't want to watch them suffer." But the interesting thing is that there are three different ver- uh, rules in the Torah that talk about the, the animal's psychological suffering, right? And this, I think, is really well beyond what at least I'm aware of in any other culture in the ancient world. First, do not muzzle an ox on the threshing floor, right? Now, why not? First of all, what is a threshing floor? Before I get to, to do that, right? Come on, city slickers. What, what would you guess is a threshing floor? Where they go round and round to uh, get the chaff out of the grain. That's right. Today we do that by machine. That is, that is not, I would imagine, anybody on this call. But farmers do this by machine now, right? Uh, but in the ancient world, they didn't have that. And so what happened is to get the, the uh, you know, to, to rid, to get the, the wheat off, uh, separated from the chaff. By the way, wheat doesn't, uh, let me start from the beginning, right? This I actually have seen. Um, when, when wheat grows, Right. It doesn't just grow as kernels of wheat. It grows within uh, within uh, what's called chaff. It grows within a covering uh, that you have to remove in order to get to the kernel of wheat. Um, and so the way that they did that was that they had a threshing floor above that was like a, a, a below a kind of basement, as it were. Right. And the threshing floor was constructed in such a way that, first of all, it was very strong because you're going to have oxen going around and around in it, and oxen are very heavy. Um, and it was it was done in such a way that there were holes in the threshing floor so that the kernels of wheat could could fall to the bottom, to the basement, basically, right? Um, so these oxen would go round and around, seeing these these um, these these kernels of wheat within their within their their covering, their what called the chaff, and probably want to eat them. Right. But if you put a muzzle on the ox's mouth, then the, the oxen sees this food, 
but cannot eat it. So that would cause psychological suffering to the animal, right? It's sort of, here's this food, but I, I can't get to it. It's, um, uh, and, and Rashi on this verse says, scripture is speaking of what usually occurs, but the same, namely that it's an ox and a threshing floor for it. But the same rule applies to any cow, non-domesticated beast and fowl that are doing some work that is connected with food. So in other words, he's saying that this is not just about oxen, this is about any animal. But if so, why does it, why does scripture state ox to exclude a human being from being subject to this law? That is, if he restrains a workman from eating while engaged in some operation connected with food, the master is exempt from the flagellation usually inflicted on one who transgresses a negative commandment. Right? So if you have people working for you in the food industry, right? Maybe even not, not at the beginning of it, like, you know, in the harvesting and, and all of that, but in the actual preparation of the food, you can insist that your workers not eat the food that they're preparing. Right? This, this rule does not prohibit that. And as a matter of fact, um, there is another part of the Talmud in Baba Metzia <clears throat> that talks about people who are threshing. <clears throat> and because there's another rule in Deuteronomy um, that says that the that workers are allowed to eat of some of the food that they are threshing, that they are harvesting. And then the question becomes, well, what percentage of the food that they are, are they harvesting are they allowed to eat? Um, so that's in regard to workers. Okay. But <clears throat> what Rashi is pointing out here is that, that this law does not apply to human beings. For that, you have to have separate laws having to do with workers' rights. That's a whole different story. Then if a bird's nest happens to be before you on the road in a tree or on the ground with young ones or, or eggs, and the mother is sitting on the young one and the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young, but let her go. The young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and prolong your days. So it's not that you may not take the eggs <clears throat> or even the chicks if they, um, if they have already hatched, right? Um, but you must show away, show away the uh, mother bird first, presumably for what reason? What would you guess? To prevent psychological distress. That's right. To prevent the mother from having to see her baby chicks or the, or the eggs that she laid uh, being taken away from before her because the presumption of the Torah is that the mother bird really wants to um, sort of wants to, to culture these eggs and, and see her children, right? Um, see her children thrive, not see her children being taken away to, to be eaten. Um, now, you're going to see later that Ramban suggests another reason as well, but I think the, the, the direct reason is, is what Ellis just said. Another one, Leviticus 22. From eight days old, an animal may be brought as an offering, but whether it be a cow or you, you must not kill it and its young both in one day. So again, the presumption is that <clears throat> that animals um, suffer psychological pain as well as physical pain, and our obligation is to prevent both. Now, Rambam gives you that reason, but another one as well. Uh, the reason for both commandments is that we should not have a cruel heart and be uncompassionate, where it may be that scripture does not permit us to destroy a species altogether, although it permits slaughter for food within that group. In other words, he's arguing really two different reasons. One is that you should be compassionate and should not uh, kill a bird together with its young on the same day or an animal together with its young on the same day, or 
It may be that scripture does not permit us to destroy species altogether, although it permits slaughter for food within that group. Biodiversity, right? Basically what Nachman is saying in the 13th century is that we have to be careful to preserve the biodiversity in nature. Now, he who kills the mother and the young in one day or takes them when they are free to fly is regarded as though he cut off that species. And that's what we're not allowed to do. Now, interestingly, um, do you know about Jainism? Uh, Jainism is a, a religion that began in India, and still most Jains live in India, but there's a, there's a fairly strong um, Jain community in Southern California. And I actually went to a, a conference um, at, uh, at Claremont uh, about Jainism, and it was a day-long conference, and the Jains... Uh, are not only vegans, but they um, will not allow people to eat uh, either carrots or um, uh, carrots or potatoes uh, because those are root vegetables. And if you take out the carrot, you're taking out any any remainder of it. So you you you're, you at least endanger the possibility. Uh, you you bring the danger that that uh, that you will no longer be able to have carrots in the world. So they will not eat root vegetables. They're not only vegan, but sort of vegan plus. Um, and to some extent, that's what Ramban is talking about in the 13th century, something that in modern times we talk about as the importance of maintaining biodiversity. Um, but he already had that sense <clears throat> that, that we have an obligation to try to uh, maintain the various diverse Marabuma Saka Adonai, right? Oh, oh, oh. Wide and diverse are your are your uh, your creations, God, uh, in Psalm 104, the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh, uh, and we are <clears throat> we are supposed to make sure that we don't take the young and the and the, and the mother animals at the same time uh, because of the worry about maintaining that biodiversity. Now, <clears throat> one last section here, and then I want to talk about some contemporary issues. Um, we already saw Rava saying that that the requirement to prevent suffering animals is a Torah law, and that then leads to this segment in Shabbat 128 in the Talmud. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, with regard to an animal that fell into an aqueduct on, on Shabbat, one brings cushions and blankets and throws them into the water ditch and places them beneath the animal in the aqueduct. And if the animal thereby emerges, it emerges. But even if it doesn't, what's the point of throwing... Um, of throwing cushions and blankets into the aqueduct. So the animal won't drown so it can have something to stand on. That's right. One reason is so that an animal will not drown. What would be another reason, do you think? So it's comfortable, right? It does not, it's not suffering in the aqueduct. Um, but it has actually cushions and, um, you know, uh, cushions and pillows there, um, and blankets even. And it will enable it possibly to even get out of the aqueduct, right? If the animal thereby emerges, it emerges so that whatever suffering it's enduring, um, you can do that. And an objection was raised from a Tosafta with regard to an animal that fell into an aqueduct uh, on Shabbat. One provides it with sustenance in its place so that it will not die because you, you have no idea how hungry it is. Um, but then the Gemara asks, does, does he not, by placing cushions and blankets, Negate of vessels preparedness, which you're not allowed to do in Shabbat. It's one of the, it's a Toledah, one of the 39 Malachah. Right? You're not allowed to 
ruin something that you would normally use for some purpose. Okay, that's that's a tovadah of destruction. You're not allowed to build something on Shabbat, and you're also not allowed to destroy it. So negating a vessel's preparedness is a is a tovadah. Is a that's a, a correlation of the prohibition to destroy something on Shabbat. Um, the cushions of blank goods are no longer fit for their designated use in Shabbat, and this negation of their designated uses similar to the prohibition labor of dismantling, or in other words, destroying. The Gemara ants answers. Rav holds that negating a Torah vessel's preparedness is prohibited by rabbinic law. It's not a, it's not a malacha, it's a tolada, right? It's a derivative of the Torah law, right? Um, uh, that negating a vessel's preparedness is prohibited by rabbinic law, causing a living creature to suffer is a Torah prohibition, and a matter prohibited by Torah law comes and overrides a matter prohibited by rabbinic law. So here's what's going on here is that the prohibition to cause, uh, at least as in Rav's position, and and also in Rava, as we saw earlier, right? Um, their position is that Rava, by the way, was a student of Rav. Um, their their position is that you that that uh, undermining or preventing suffering from of animals is a Torah prohibition, and therefore it takes precedence over any of the rabbinic legislation in regard to Shabbat. And then Rambam. Many years later, of course, in the 12th century, uh, says, in the case of one who climbed a tree inadvertently on Shabbat, it is permissible to descend. But if he did it volitionally, it is forbidden to descend. Why do you think that's the case? If you, you, you were just having fun and you decided to climb a tree, right? Why is it required that you stay in the tree all day on Shabbat and not come to, down until after Shabbat? What would you guess? You'll break branches and pull off leaves. Exactly. Which you're not allowed to do on Shabbat, right? Um, but if he climbed on an animal, he must descend, even when he intentionally climbed onto it, on account of the provision of causing pain to animals. And we must likewise remove the load from on top of an animal on Shabbat on account of pain to animals. So you've got here a number of sources that, that maintain that it is that, that Sar Balei Chaim is not just a rabbinic invention, that because it is a generalization over a number of Torah laws, Sar Balei Chaim itself uh, is of Torah status, okay, and therefore takes prohibit takes uh, takes um, you know, and takes precedence over any rabbinic law. Yeah, Jody, go ahead. Okay, so this is all the past stuff, right? But I want to jump in because I've been studying this subject. And these are lovely texts, but you are so cherry picking, Elliot. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the, this Torah law does not take precedence. It is not by any means absolute. If you need to use that animal and it, and it, suffering occurs in the normal, uh, course of using that animal, it's fine. It's also, um, and there are all these horrible, nightmare Talmud texts that I've been looking at that allow you that where they even talk about Rava, Rava, what he says, and he's overridden. For example, there's one, let's say you go to a Gentile fair of, of, of day and you buy yourself a horse. You're not supposed to do that. And so not only are you punished, the horse is punished and they discuss how are you going to punish the horse? So they say, cut it, cut off its legs from the knee down. And others say, no, just starve it to death. 
and someone says, oh, but how about Tzar Baalei Echayim? And say, no, too bad. This is not, this takes precedence. Same thing with when you bring a mother and a calf on a, on a Yom Tov to bring it to the Kohen and they fall into a pit. Can you take out both of them? No, you can only take out one because you can't kill the mother and, the, and her calf on the same day. So one's got to suffer. Oh, but some say, but what if you just pretend, oh, I'm going to take out the mother because I'm going to sacrifice her. And then you change your mind. You do like a little trick. Can't you do that? And they say, oh, I want the son, I want the baby. And they say they overrule it. <laughs> so there are all sorts of ways that this Torah law gets overruled within the Talmud. Now, maybe Maimonides doesn't, but the Talmud doesn't really give that much of a hoot about this Torah law. I mean, they might in these texts, but in other ways, they don't. And you even have someone like Ramban saying, well, we don't really care about suffering that much because we can eat the animal and we know the animal suffers when you kill it, even if you do it according to Shechita and all the proper things. Okay. So they themselves have this thing. Well, but... It can suffer in the course of using it. Using it is not just eating it. It's labor, getting its fur, wild animals, getting, you know, their mink, whatever. Good. Thank you. We did not plan this. That was exactly the segue to what I was going to talk about, namely the other side of this. Yes. Right? And the other side of it, Jody just told you um, very articulately and, and rightfully, namely, okay. after it's all said and done, the, the tradition understood it to be permissible to use animals, even if it caused them some some pain. And it and not only seemed impermissible, it was sort of standard operating procedure. Right? It wasn't a one one every once in a while this happened. This was every day. I mean, animals were used for doing all kind like on the threshing floor and to carry burdens and all of that. And not Shabbat probably, but every other and not not Chagim, but on other days of the week. It was perfectly permissible to um, to slaughter them and to uh, and to to eat them um, and to use their fur or to use their hides. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what we do in order to create a safer Torah, no less. Right. Um, so the question then became: over the course of centuries, how do you balance these things? On the one hand, we are allowed to use animals and to even to eat them. Uh, at least some of them, um, but um, uh, uh, actually, um, Jacob Milgram, a love shalom, estimated in one of his articles estimated that 96% of the animal kingdom is forbidden to Jews to eat, and only about 4% of the animal kingdom is is permitted to Jews to eat. And then, under very specific circumstances, in terms of how the slaughter happens, taking the blood out, and how they're you know, how they're prepared, how they're served, all of that. But still, in the end, um, Jewish law does not require one to be a vegetarian or a vegan, right? Quite the opposite. Um, during the Middle Ages, at least, uh, the presumption was that uh, that people were poor and that if they were going to eat meat, it was only going to be on Shabbat, and that that was one of the ways in which you were Zachor Yom HaShabbat Lekadjo, if you came across an animal that you were going to be able to eat since you shouldn't, you couldn't eat it, you know, during, during the weekend, have it you left for Shabbat. One of the ways you remembered Shabbat was that you, you, I, you, uh, you preserved it for your meals on Shabbat, right? And that was one of the ways that was owning Shabbat. That was one of the ways of remembering Shabbat and causing, um, and, and causing you joy. 
So in the same sort of way, uh, what I wanted to, to deal with was, uh, was some, some contemporary examples. Um, the, um, in particular, you know, I do a lot of bioethics. Um, and, and what, and I was on uh, a federal commission in the, in, from 2000 to 2002 called National Human Resources Protections Advisory Commission. Uh, it was a commission to review and revise the federal guidelines on research on human beings. Uh, after Jesse Gelsinger, a 26 year old Jewish guy actually, um, died as a result of medical experiments at, at University of Pennsylvania. And Ellen Roach, a 24 year old young woman, uh, died as a result of medical experiments at Hopkins. Uh, now Penn and Hopkins are first rate medical centers. And so, uh, this, this was, this commission was called into existence, uh, in the waning months of the Clinton administration and lasted for about two years into the W administration. Um, and we were supposed to review and revise the federal guidelines on this, uh, on research on human beings. Along the way, um, we were also looking at guidelines in regard to the use of animals for medical research. And I'm sorry to tell you also for research on cosmetics. Um, namely, how does, how are animals used in, uh, in the United States for both of these purposes? Let me just say that the, um, the, the use for cosmetics is really, really controversial, but it's done every day of the week, right? Um, and both in terms of creating new kinds of cosmetics and in terms of testing them on animal skins before they're tested on human skins, right? Um, and in regard to medicine, all the more so. Um, the, the, it is presumed to be the moral way to deal with medicines is that when you are, are trying to um, create them, that you test them on animals before you test them on human beings. Um, now, that sometimes leads to real suffering, right, on the part of, of animals. Um, and it's a, uh, and, and, and one of the, the good news that I want to tell you is that um, because we now have uh, stem cell research, uh, we are able to create stem cell lines on which we are able to, to test medicines on stem cell lines, which at least as far as we can tell, do not have consciousness, right? Um, so we're able to test medicines on stem cell lines before we test them on animals so that at least the worst of them would, uh, the worst of the, uh, of the diseases, I mean, of the medicines that would cause the most suffering would be able to be ruled out and the stem cell um, portion of the medical experimentation before they're ever tested on human beings. Um, but even with that, um, it still is the case that uh, in order for a medicine to be, uh, to be approved by the, uh, by the FDA um, and then later approved by the CDC, um, for any of those medicines to be approved, the, after you do stem cell line testing, you have to do animal testing in order to, before it can be approved for human use. Um, and, you know, clearly um, the people involved in this are doing what they can to make sure that, um, that they're not just going wild and testing anything that comes to be, right? I mean, they are trying to, to create things that will ultimately vet, benefit humankind as well as uh, by whether for animals as well. I mean, 
you know, this is not just uh, medical doctors here, it's also veterinarians that are interested in creating medicines for animals. Um, so, I mean, they're, they have a vested interest in trying to, uh, to create, to create uh, medicines that will work for both animals and human beings. Um, but it's, uh, I should say, human beings and other animals. Um, but, the, uh, but the point is that it is still the case that the protocol is that you test on animals first before you test on human beings. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, that sometimes leads to a lot of uh, suffering on the part of animals. Um, but it is thought, it is thought to be morally correct uh, that it be that it be animals that suffer before you uh, you subject this uh, to human beings. Rabbi um, Dork, can I just sorry? Ahead. Can I just ask you to stop screen share because I think yes. if we're done with the text, then. Or if we're done with the text, stop this. So that way we'll all see each other. Great. Good. Thanks. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, um, and um, so I wanted to at least mention that um, as part of the contemporary issue. The other piece of it, of course, is the, the animals that are used for food. Um, and um, we, uh, un- well, I would say, unfortunately, in America, have... Um, major, you know, farm fact- factories in which uh, animals are really, frankly, abused uh, in the process of being um, of being cultivated and then also being slaughtered. And in the conservative movement, um, this goes back at least eight years, I think, uh, Rabbi Pamela Barmash wrote a tshuva that, uh, frankly, for- forbids um, uh, veal that has been um, cultivated in the, ver- in the really... Uh, unscrupulous kinds of conditions uh, that that little cows are, uh, calves are, are, are kept in in order to gain veal. Why? Because if you let them frolic in the, in the, in the world, they will develop muscles and the, the, the meat will be less tender. It'll be tougher. So in order to avoid that for veal cows, uh, it is the case that um, they're, uh, that, that they often are, confined from birth into very small um, places, right? And uh, so that they grow up with very tender meat. Uh, so in her chuva, uh, it, it would allow only free-range meat. So when, when this was passed, I actually asked uh, the head of the kitchen at, uh, at American Jewish University, you know, do we serve veal at all? And if so, is it free-range? And he said, first of all, we don't serve veal very much at all because it's very expensive. And second, to the extent that we do it, it's free range. But I'm, I'm sorry to say, not for moral reasons, but for economic reasons, free range veal is much cheaper than uh, than the other kind of veal, right? Because it's tougher. Um, so, I mean, um, I do want to mention one other thing, and then I'm going to stop. Many, many years ago, in the 1970s, we had a rabbinical student who um, came from Denver and was himself a vegetarian. But he did his master's project on kosher slaughter. At that time, I don't know if it's still the case, but a kosher abattoir uh, existed in Denver. And so during the, so he wanted to see what was going on there. And um, during the winter break, he did that. He got permission to go in. And he, he told me he, he went there, you know, expecting to see things that would absolutely, uh, absolutely abhor him. And, and, and in fact, came away from it rather impressed that first of all, they were not using hoisting and shackling 
they were using the Temple Grandin pens, right? And um, the Shochet, in fact, did say a blessing before each and every cow that he slaughtered. Um, so, I mean, it was, there was at least an attention to trying to uh, <laughs> recognize the dignity of the animal and to minimize its suffering. At least that's what he reported to me. That was part of his master's thesis. Um, so, I mean, I personally am a vegetarian, although when I told the reason why is because I came across a, a, well, first of all, I was never much of a meat eater. And when I ate meat, it had to be very well done. And real carnivores like it raw or close to that. Okay. Um, I married Marilyn and she comes from a real, real meat eating family. Uh, and the, the, I guess the, the, uh, the message was already very clear when we first got married. I said, all right, we'll have chicken Friday night, but on, on Saturday noon, let's have something else. Okay. Um, but then I came across this passage in the Talmud. This is, I was a, a, a rabbi in residence at Ramah, uh, in Chulin, uh, which is not law. It's a matter of Derek Eretz. It says you should only eat meat under two conditions. One that you have a great desire for it which was also really iffy in my case. And second, that you slaughter the animal yourself. No way. <laughs> I have been queasy since I was a little kid. My father used to love to take me fishing when I was a little kid. And I loved getting up in the morning and being in the boat with him and all of that right by dawn. But to put a worm on a hook, let alone that God forbid I should catch a fish, forget it, right? So I told Marlon, I'm becoming a vegetarian. So she said to me, if you're still eating fish, I'm still cooking for you. Otherwise, you're on your own. So for that very practical and unprincipled reason, I eat fish. Okay. But, um, but, but Marlon still eats meat. And, you know, and I, I know very, very, a lot of very good Jews who eat meat. And I, I'm, you know, I, I think that, I think if you keep kosher, that's at least one step in the right direction. Um, go ahead, Jody. Yes. Another question. Um, so I'm interested in um, the difference between how a conservative rabbi, say on the like Barnash, that's her name, Barnash, yeah. that that real tshuva, which I read, makes a decision versus how an Orthodox rabbi makes a decision, because the Orthodox rabbi is going to look at the thousand, two thousand years of precedence from the Talmud up to where we are, and he'll say. He'll ignore what it says in Chulin. He's going to look at the Shulchan Aruch, and he's going to look at later, whatever, later opinions. And, of course, you have to eat meat on Shabbat, whatever. But the conservative movement and your decisions are more like you're jumping back to particular principles in the Talmud, and you're giving weight to them. And, in fact, you are even saying, I'm really going to accept that it's a Torah law, and I'm not going to accept its exceptions. So... You call it halacha, and I will call it halacha, but the Orthodox won't call it halacha because of that method. Can you can you talk about the method? And I've seen other people who said, well, look at what Milgram says about not eating blood, the spirit, it goes against the spirit. You know, spirit is not halacha, spirit is something in Agadah, right? So, right, so can you talk about this method? And All right. Can I, can I add to that question? Sure, please, go so as I say, okay, we have the veal chuva. So should there be a chuva on, and or how would it be? Deci- how would one decide? Let's just say 
ethical eggs, that the chickens have more room to roam instead of being squashed together? How will how can someone decide, well, because of suffering, eggs that are not humane certified, which is defined as so much square feet for the chickens, are declared not kosher, like veal. Um, yeah. Given that there is principles and counter principles in, in the halakhic tradition. All right. So, uh, Jody, I, I, I mean, I love this stuff. As a matter of fact, I've written two books on methodology, um, one of which, um, The Unfolding Tradition, Philosophies of Jewish Law, which is now out of print, but you can get an ebook on Amazon for like eight bucks or something, The Unfolding Tradition, Philosophies of Jewish Law, in which I discuss 15 different theories of law within the conservative movement and then compare them to some orthodox positions on the right and some reform and further left of the reform positions on the left in terms of what constitutes a methodology to interpret and apply Jewish law. Okay, good. Um, and then I'll tell you another one. This one, for the love of God and people, a philosophy of Jewish law, namely mine, okay, for the love of God and people, uh, which talks about uh, my own philosophy of Jewish law and and why I accept that as, as such. In which what you will find is that, unlike somebody like Joel Roth, um, who says that there are extra legal considerations uh, to the law, and by the law he simply means uh, that which is written down in text somewhere, right? The way that I understand Jewish law, uh, which is a very, by the way, German way of looking at the law, and he actually quotes Kelsen, who's a German legal theorist, right? The way that I understand Jewish law is that it's an organic system and that the text of the law are just one part of what the law is. The law also includes moral, moral issues, social issues, economic issues, what's good for the Jews and all of that. And one of the, one of my favorite stories actually about Jewish law and what I quote, um, in the book is the, uh, I learned from my father. My father, my grandparents lived across the street from a large Orthodox synagogue in Milwaukee. And so my parent, my grandparents would host people who showed up on Friday afternoon who needed a place for Shabbat. So when my father was about 15, my grandmother sent him across the street to find out whether there were going to be any such uh, guests on Shabbat, right? He walked into the rabbi's office, and the rabbi was, um, according to the Encyclopedia of Judaica, uh, the dean of Orthodox rabbis in Milwaukee for three generations, all right? He walks into the, my father walked into the office and there, and there the rabbi is holding a chicken, literally, and there was a woman there, and, um, and she wanted to know where the, the chicken was kosher, right? So he, he, the rabbi is turning the chicken over and over again and asking her all kinds of questions about the health of the family and econ, you know, economically, how is work going and all of that. And he pronounces the chicken kosher and she leaves. And my father said to him, why were you asking her all these questions? She was just asking whether the chicken was kosher. And he said to my father, if you think the kosher of the chicken is only a, a matter of the physical condition of the chicken, you know nothing about Jewish law. Because if I were to pronounce that chicken not kosher, they would have nothing to eat that night. That's what I determined. Right? So and, 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 and you have to be, let me just say, I, I, you have to be very wary of being a, what's called a legal positivist. That is that the only law that's around is what's in the books, right? Custom plays a major role in Jewish law. That's another thing I didn't mention just a moment ago, 
right? Especially when we, because we are people that's scattered all over the world, right? So, so what constitutes, um, care of animals, among other things, uh, varies a lot. Now, Joel Roth, who was my junior counselor when I was 15 years old at Campermont, Wisconsin, and, uh, we have spent our lives, we are conservative rabbis and we spent our lives teaching with each other. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I if the proverbial, if the proverbial Martian would, would kind of come down and look at the two of us, he would find, I think, very difficult time distinguishing us. That said, um, and, and we are, we are good friends. I mean, this is really not telling bad stories out of school or anything like that, right? Um, but as you'll see in, in my book, he, he is a legal positivist, although a soft legal positivist, because he allows for extra legal things to in, in, in influence the, the determination of the law. Um, but I, I think that that's just not Jewish, to be very honest. I think that is very German, right? Because starting with the, the Torah itself, um, um, Michael Fishbane wrote a, a really very thick and very mm-hmm. dense book in 1984-85 on biblical biblical interpretation. Right. What, he, what he shows is that the later stages of the Torah itself are interpreting and applying the earlier stages, right? All as it were, in regard to how the rabbis use Midrash, both Midrash Halakha and Midrash Agadah. So, I mean, to see the law the way that some Orthodox and some conservative rabbis do as being totally a function of what's in the books, I think is just, is just mis- misunderstanding the nature of Jewish law, right? And that therefore, if we're talking about developing a, a, Jew, a Jewish law appropriate to how animals are treated in our time, both for food and for medical purposes, um, we do need to take into account the stories in the Talmud as well as the laws, right? And the development of laws over time in order to be, to have what I would call an authentic and a wise Jewish law for our time. I have a short That's question. More than you wanted to hear, but. Yeah. Sorry, I have a quick, <laughs> sorry. sorry, I have a quick question, short question. Um, so we've all heard the party line that uh, kosher slaughter is what it is because that's the most humane way for the animal to die. What is the source of that, of the because that is the most humane way for the animal to die? Is that Talmudic or not even? No, that's not Talmudic, as far as okay. I know anyway, right? Okay. Um, and in any case, I mean, Joel and I actually... Oh, Joel and I, Joel Roth and I wrote Brother Chuva together um, about um, shackling and hoisting animals. And we both said that that was a violation of Tsar Balei Chaim. Now, I wanted to go further and say, it's not kosher if you do that. But that he would not do, right? Because along the lines that Jordi was just talking about a while ago, right? If you, if you look at, and if you look at the Shulchan Aruch uh, on and, and the laws of kosher slaughter, um, what is what is presented as kosher meat in the butcher shops and in the kosher butcher shops does in fact follow those rules, right? The fact that it violate that it might violate other rules is another matter, right? Um, but see, to the left of me is somebody like Arthur Waskot, who wants to talk about eco kashrut, right? Where the issue is not just pain for animals, the issue is what is the ecological um, uh, implications of, of raising cows altogether? The methane that comes from their, uh, from their, you know, their uh, excrement and things like that, right? Um, by the way, there was a very interesting article 
uh, we got the New York Times and the LA and the LA Times, so I always forget where it is, where I read it. But there's some place in Scotland which is developing new ways to raise animals that will, such that they uh, cows, such that they will their excrement will have less methane in them, something like sixty percent less. But of course, if you didn't need if you didn't raise them at all, there would be 100% less. Right. But the, um, but the point is that still, I mean, the fact of the matter is, as the Torah itself recognizes in the Noah story after the Adam and Eve story, uh, human beings will eat meat. So if that's the case, what you want to do is, is diminish the negative effects of that, both on human health and also on the environment. So if I understand that correctly, you would say there might be Jewish principles about why someone should or shouldn't eat something, and we still might not call those principles kashrut. Right. You might That's call right. it some... By the way, does the Barmash Juva say that that um, veal is not kosher or that it is tsar balei chayim and that's why we shouldn't eat it? I have to look again at it. I don't remember, actually. I, mean, okay. I think... I think it was a violation of Sarabale Kayim, I think. Rather than declaring it not kosher. Yes, that's right. Larry. Larry yes. yes, Larry. I have dozens of questions. I'm only going to ask one. Does the principle of pikuach nefesh apply to animals? Um, no. And that's the reason why, in that source that I showed you, if an animal falls into an aqueduct, you can't just do whatever you want on Shabbat on the basis of Nikoach Nefesh, right? So that's why, in that source, they had to deal with it on the basis of Tzar Baal Echayim. Judaism uh, is not anti-speciesism across right. the board. Right. <clears throat> Michael, Michael Ozer, you had a question? A comment? Oh, there's a hand up. Yes, uh, Rabbi Dorf, why do you think that these very, uh, the, the, uh, the movements toward creating a, a more... Um, sustainable kashrut, um, sort of uh, ethical kashrut, uh, have never taken on. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to know your opinion about why, especially in this day and age, they just never took off. Well, I mean, I think, uh, and by the way, that's a real issue for the conservative movement, um, because uh, Rabbi Morris Allen, a, a colleague of ours, um, who a conservative rabbi in St. Paul, although I think he just retired, um, uh, created a program with a rabbinical assembly um, in which there was going to be uh, a tav. It was originally called a tav hefsher, a, 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 um, a, a what should I say, a marker of being kosher. Uh, but then that raised all kinds of questions that we were just talking about. In other words, are you saying that that? Slaughterhouses that don't have this are not actually producing kosher meat. So it was, it was a tav tzedek, I think it was in the end, right? In which the idea would be that in, uh, in evaluating the, the fitness of meat, um, for, uh, eating, for Jews to eat, you would have taken into account also how the workers were treated, um, the, how the animals were treated and the ecological effects of what was going on in producing the meat. And the idea would be that um, slaughterhouses and for that matter, restaurants um, that used, uh, that, that abided by the principles that were set out in this document would get this, not only they would be, they would, they might be kosher, but they, they would also be 
um, righteous, as it were, right? The problem was, and this was really worked out over years, uh, and you can find those documents on the Rabbinical Assembly website if you want. If you have any trouble with that, just tell me and I'll, I'll, I'll email them to you. Um, the, um, the problem was you, um, you couldn't get slaughterhouses to, uh, to do this, right? Because it would, because then why not? Number one, economically, it would cost them more money. And they weren't, and they, they weren't convinced that there were enough kosher Jews that would insist on this, right? And then the other thing was, it's just easier to do what we've been doing for years, right? And by the way, uh, why, why isn't, why haven't a lot of Jews, you know, uh, become vegetarians? Well, because a lot of people like me, right? And they're willing to go only so far in worrying about how animals are treated or in worrying about how people worrying, working in slaughterhouses are treated, right? We don't, we human beings are not morally ideal. Okay, that's the long and the short of it. <laughs> I'm going to call time. Sorry to end on the note, uh, end on a note of things are not morally ideal, but I think we'd all agree that things are not morally ideal. Okay. But it's important to talk about the ideals and learn about them. Um, That's right. And to strive for them. And to strive for them aspirationally and hopefully not just aspirationally, but actually with movement. So yes, movement towards them. So Rabbi Dorf, thanks so much for teaching us today and sharing and, uh, and, like Larry, I'm sure we all have like tons and tons of questions. So hopefully there'll be opportunities for these conversations to continue in the future. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.